0: Lord, as we look at the last portion of John 12, uh, pray you'd make it meaningful to each one of us uh, in the ways we need it to be. And thank you for both your warnings and your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. I was struck as I was preparing for this teaching this morning how often I quote C.S. Lewis, and I'm quoting him again this morning, open up or to introduce the passage we'll be in. <clears throat> this is the, from the book, The Horse and His Boy, you know, from the Chronicles of Narnia. This is one of my crew's favorite uh, stories out of that collection. In the very end of this story, uh, the villain in the story, Rabadash, has been uh, conquered, vanquished, and he's standing before the leader's of the countries he wanted to destroy and they're they're deciding what to do with them and they're kind of trying to show him mercy they actually are very much but he's so proud and he's so vain and he's so mean and small-hearted that he's throwing it back in their faces essentially. And into this collection, into this gathering, this conversation suddenly grows quiet and that's because Aslan I'm sure, most of you know, is the kind of the Christ figure in these stories, a giant lion who is the, the rightful ruler over all of Narnia, this world they inhabit. Aslan was among them, and I'm editing as I read here in case you think I forgot something. Aslan was among them, though no one had seen him coming. Rabadash, the villain, started as the immense shape of the lion paced softly in between him and his accusers. Rabadash said Aslan, take heed. Your doom is very near, but you may still avoid it. Forget your pride, what have you to be proud of, and your anger, who has done you wrong, and accept the mercy of these good kings. Rabidash rolled his eyes and spread out his mouth into a horrible, long, mirthless grin like a shark, wagged his ears up and down. Anyone, uh, sorry, can learn to do this if they take the trouble, Lewis tells us. That says he'd always been fond of this. He'd used this to impress and, and make other people afraid of him in the past. Then he screams out to Aslan, Demon, 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 shrieked the prince. I know you. You're the foul fiend of Narnia. You're the enemy of the gods. Learn who I am, horrible phantasm. I am descended from Tash, the inexorable, the irresistible, the curse of Tash is upon you. Lightning in the shape of scorpions shall be rained on you. The mountains of Narnia shall be ground into dust. The... Have a care, Rabadash, said Aslan quietly. The doom is near now. It is at the door. It has lifted the latch. Let the skies fall, shrieked Rabadash. Let the earth gape. Let blood and fire obliterate the world. (laughs) The hour has struck, said Aslan, and Rabadash saw to his supreme horror that everyone had begun to laugh. They couldn't help it. Rabbidash had been wagging his ears all the time, and as soon as Aslan said the hour has struck, the ears began to change. They grew longer and more pointed and soon were covered with gray hair. While everyone was wondering where they had seen ears like that before, Rabbidash's face began to change too. It grew longer and thicker at the top and large-eyed, and the nose sank back into the face, or else the face swelled out and became all nose. And there was hair all over it, and his arms grew longer and came down in front of him till his hands were resting on the ground, only they weren't hands now, they were hoofs. And he was standing on all fours, and his clothes disappeared, and everyone laughed louder and louder. They couldn't help it. For now what had been rabidash was simply and unmistakably a donkey. The terrible thing was that his human speech lasted just a moment longer than his human shape, so that when he realized the change that was coming over him, he screamed out, Oh no, not a donkey, mercy! If it were even a horse, e'en a horse, e'aw, e'aw. And so the words died away into a donkey's bray. This is a humorous introduction to a serious passage this morning, but uh, Rabidash became what he'd chosen all along, he became an ass. And his decisions over time, even with the warnings in front of him, be careful, have a care, it's right at the door, the latch is lifting. They were all ignored. And so that in the end, the choices he made, made him. And a guy had chosen to be an ass, a donkey, a horse's behind, so to speak, all along the way. That's what he becomes, the fruit of his choice. The passage we're in this morning, John 12, 34 through 50, it's a little lengthy, a little bit more than we normally break off in a single morning. I'm going to highlight basically only a few verses. We'll work through the whole passage, but most of that we'll just treat briefly. We'll look at a few verses primarily. And the key theme I want to bring up, which Rabidash is an illustration of, is be careful how you choose, because the choices you make, make you And also along with that, if you remember last week, we said that truth and reality were spiritually or morally discerned or apprehended so that sometimes if you think, why doesn't someone see what I see clearly? It's because morally they're unable to, spiritually they're unable to comprehend it. And biblically, John brings out this morning both that the choices you make make you, And that truth or the apprehension of reality is like a fruit that has a season. And it's in season sometimes, and it's out at others. And you've got to pick it, you've got to apprehend it, you've got to welcome it, receive it when you can. There's two reasons for this. I'm just telling you where we're going. Then we'll look at all this in the passage. Two reasons for this. The first is this, when we reject truth, when we reject reality, that is, either to recognize the truth or reality for what it is, truth and reality, or to act upon it. We don't just make a single choice in time that is unaffected related to anything else we do. We make choices that determine who and what we are. And choices against the truth and against reality over time callous us. And they make us into something we weren't before. And they harden us so that we become less and less able to apprehend the truth the longer we deny it. You'll see that in the passage this morning. The other thing is this, and this sounds harsh, but it's certainly affirmed throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testaments. God sometimes steps into these arrangements in which a person or a group has refused time after time to embrace truth or reality. Sometimes God sovereignly steps in and says, I'm confirming your decision. You've made a choice. You've repeatedly affirmed that choice, and now it's the only choice I'm going to allow you. I'm stamping my insignia on your choice and saying this is the way it's going to be. And you'll see John picks up both of these thoughts in the passage this morning. If you remember, we're still with Jesus in a conversation he's had with the group in which he talked about he was the grain of wheat that would die, but through his death would come resurrection, would come life to many. And then he'd said that he, as the Son of Man, would be lifted up, and this lifting up, which was his crucifixion and resurrection, would have the effect of drawing people to himself. That's where we pick up this morning at verse 34. The crowd answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness doesn't overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. Now, most of those with Jesus in this conversation don't understand where he's at or where he's going or the claims he's making. They're saying something like this. We understand when you say you're going to be lifted up that you're going to leave us. We're not even sure how they knew that, this reference. But they understand he's saying he's the Messiah and he's going to leave them. And they say, we don't get it because we thought that once the Messiah came, he wouldn't leave. He'd be here, he'd rule and reign and set things up and we'd be good to go. Jesus does not bother in this context to tell them what the timeline is that God's on here. He doesn't tell them that the Messiah is portrayed, we'll see in just a minute, as both the suffering servant and the conquering king. He's portrayed as both. And that Jesus is coming this first time while they're here and talking with them as the suffering servant. He doesn't explain all this to them, but he does tell them this. (coughs) He's the light. And this light, this beacon of truth is with them for this limited duration. He's going to be gone soon. He'll be gone back to heaven. Crucifixion, resurrection, 40 days, and he'll be gone. And he's telling them that they've got this time in which they can choose to believe the truth to come to the light but that that time will be gone in a certain fashion. It's going to come and it'll be gone. When he says this, it's clear that he is making a statement about not only the group he's speaking to, but to us too, that there's a time and a season in which we can accept truth or we can apprehend what is real or reality, or we can choose to obey or submit our wills to what the truth is, to what God is saying but that if there's a season, the season has an end point. The season comes and the season goes. And Jesus is warning them that he's like the statue of liberty holding forth this bright light of truth and that they can come to him if they will. But if they refuse, all they have left is darkness. He says, you're in the darkness right now. And I've come and I'm the light. And if you'll believe my words, you'll step out of darkness into the light. But if you reject the light... If you turn away from me, all you have left is darkness. And it's what you'll be left with, spiritual darkness, moral darkness, and the insanity and the repercussions that come with that. So I'm the light of the world, he tells them, believe in me while you can. (coughs) John interrupts the flow of this conversation with a theological interlude here. This is called uh, Pericope, verses 37 through 43. It's a subset within the larger framework of this story. And he wants us to know something about what's going on. So this isn't Jesus talking. This is John the Apostle telling us theologically, making a point for us so we don't miss it here. In verse 37 he says, "...though he had performed so many signs before them, they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet which he spoke." This is quoting Isaiah 53. "...Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed?" For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, from Isaiah 6, He has blinded their eyes, He has hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. Verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw His glory and spoke of Him. And before I move on to the main points here, when John says Isaiah saw His glory, this means that when you read Isaiah 6, And Isaiah says, I saw Yahweh high and lifted up in heaven. He's saying it's Jesus. This is a clear claim to be God, as you can find. So again, if somebody tells you Jesus didn't claim to be God, it's hard to get away from. John says that Jesus is the Yahweh that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. Look at verse 37. John tells us that most of those present were not believing in Jesus of the crowds that are around him and remember this is back this is Passover week lots and lots of people around this is also at the end of three to three and a half years of Jesus talking to Israel and performing miracles and John tells us most are still not believing this is the fallout this is the fruit all the miracles all the testimony and the fruit is most people don't believe now if they wanted to believe just think of this there's plenty of opportunity If Jesus comes along in the scene and you and I are there and we say he's making these wild claims, but could they be true if we're open to the truth? And then we see the the miracles, and especially lately Lazarus brought back from the dead. We see the miracles verifying or validating the testimony. We'd have to say, gosh, maybe this is really him. And especially if we're open and we read our Old Testaments and we realize he fits the pattern. He's doing the miracles that Isaiah said the Messiah would do. We'd have to say, we'd have to conclude, he must be who he said he is. We don't understand some other things, but he must be the Messiah. But John tells us here, most did not believe. If they wanted to believe, if they were willing to believe, there was ample evidence and reason to do so. John says most of them did not. He then tells us from verse 38 that this refusal to believe was fulfilling a prophecy out of Isaiah 53 when Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, this is interesting. If you go back and read Isaiah, the end of Isaiah 52 and into Isaiah 53, it's one of the clearest portraits in all the scriptures, all the Old Testaments, of the Messiah, of Jesus. It's very particular about describing the Messiah as the suffering servant who would bear the penalty of sin for others. His visage would be marred. He'd be with criminals in his death, but he'd be with the rich in his grave. All these incredibly specific elements of the Messiah, but as a suffering servant, not as a conquering hero. And Isaiah says, in the day in which he gave the prophecy to Israel, about 800 years earlier, he said, Lord, they don't believe it. Lord, who has believed our report? In Isaiah's day, this wasn't accepted, wasn't received. When Jesus comes on the scene 800 years later, the one Isaiah spoke of, the suffering servant, they didn't believe it in Isaiah's day. And they don't believe it when he shows up, when the suffering servant shows up 800 years later. They don't believe it again. They didn't believe the original message. And when Jesus, the suffering servant Messiah, shows up, they don't believe it, even when he's there in the flesh, fulfilling Isaiah's words. <clears throat> Verses 39 and 40 John also goes further, and this is where, if you're going to have a problem, this is where you have it. John also tells his hearers that uh, those who are listening to Jesus could not believe, could not believe, based on Isaiah's words from his uh, vision in Isaiah 6. And Isaiah 6, one of my daughter's favorite passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah 6 is this great visual passage in which Isaiah is a young man, And it's when God commissions him to be a prophet. And so he says, I I saw God, I saw Yahweh high and lifted up in heaven. Isaiah's in heaven, he sees God. And listen to what God said. I heard a voice, the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Most people know this verse. And I said, here I am, send me. So Isaiah's in heaven, sees God. God says, hey, we need a messenger. Isaiah says, I'm your man. And God says, great, this this is your ministry. Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but don't perceive. Keep on looking, but don't understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes. They might hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. In Isaiah's day, how would you like to be commissioned as a prophet with a, a ministry that was doomed to failure? that you were going to give your life to communicate God's truth to the nation and God tells you and they're not going to believe you. Not only are they not going to believe you, I'm going to harden their hearts so they can't. <clears throat> you got to say, hmm, what's this about? Why is this going on? And also, here, John's writing his gospel. Do you remember the key verse in chapter 20? I'm writing these things to you so you can believe and be saved. John wants people to be saved. And here he's saying they can't believe. But if they believe, they'll be saved. But they can't believe. What's going on? Why does John tell us? And what is the deal here with Isaiah anyway? And then it's quote here. Why can't they believe? Why would God harden their hearts? What in the world is going on? And again, let me reiterate, and then we'll we'll illustrate. Truth and reality has a time and a season. And it's not a short time or season. It's a long time and season. God wants people to believe, but there's, <clears throat> there's a time in our lives and there's a time in the affairs of men, of individuals and of nations, of groups, in which we have the opportunity to embrace truth and reality, and it has a closure point. There's a time, and there's a season, and the longer truth and reality are denied, the more difficult it becomes to accept, and then sometimes in that process, God steps in at the end in his sovereignty and says, you've chosen over and over and over again to reject the truth, and now I'm not going to let you. Let me give you some examples. In Genesis 6, God looks at the world he made, and he says, I'm sorry I made it. I regret that I made man because he's evil thoroughly and always. And so God says, I'm going to destroy mankind. And he gave them a time. He said, I'm giving them 120 years. Talks to Noah, says, Noah, I've got a job for you. Build a boat. I'm going to save you. It says, Noah found grace or favor, mercy, in the eyes of the Lord. Noah builds a boat. But what's he doing, doing during that 120 years? For 120 years, Noah's building a boat and every log that goes up, every beam that's laid, all the pitch that's put on, it's all judgment on the world that's going to be flooded. The building of the boat for 120 years is a sign and a reminder every day to anyone who wanted to listen, judgment's coming, the floods are coming. God has given a time and a season for you to accept truth, to repent, to accept Him, and it's going to end. And on that day, God says to Noah, come on in. God closes the door and the rains descend. And Noah's the only one, Noah and his family are the only ones that are saved. But the season was 120 years long. They rejected the truth, and at the end, God says, final. That's what you want, that's what you're going to get, and judgment came. On the flip side of that, think of Jonah and Nineveh. Jonah, God's reluctant prophet to an evil city. Nineveh was a terrible city, terrible. And this was the Assyrian Empire capital. They were incredibly violent, wicked people, by our standards, by TV or movie standards today terrible. Jonah doesn't want to go there, but God wants him to go there. And what does God say to Nineveh? In Jonah 3, verse 4, Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. He cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. This is a season. It's a time. They've got a window of opportunity forty days long. The people of Nineveh, Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. They believed. The Ninevites, the wicked Ninevites, were told, you got 40 days to change your mind. And they did. They repented and they believed and they were saved. In both cases, God says, I'm giving you an opportunity to believe the truth. But it has a season and it's going to be over. And when it's over and God acts in judgment, basically all it does is finalize the decisions the group was making all along the way. There's a window of opportunity. It comes and it goes. Paul talks about what happens during this process in Ephesians 4. I think this is an important passage because if you tell yourself that God brings about a period of time in a person's life in which he no longer lets them believe the truth, this sounds harsh. But you've got to understand what this touches on and and what is involved in this process. In Ephesians 4, starting at verse 17, Paul's telling Christians in the church there not to live like the godless pagans, like the Gentiles. And this is what he says. Walk no longer or live no longer like the Gentiles in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, Having become callous, they have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And what I want you to get is the process. Paul says there's a process here. Look at that again. They're darkened in their understanding. Why is that? Remember Jesus said he's the light, he's spiritual light. Why are they darkened? Well, they're excluded from the life of God. Why has God excluded them? Well, because of ignorance. Well, why are they ignorant? Well, because they have hard hearts. And why do they have hard hearts? Because they've become callous. Because they've given themselves over to sensuality, to something else. They've become calloused. The Greek term calloused here <clears throat> has this, the sense of a uh, not feeling, not sensitive. The term would be sensitive when we put the apo in front of it, say it's away from. It's away from sensitivity. The process here is not God is excluding someone or some group from the beginning. The exclusion is the end of the process in which the people involved started by giving themselves over, faced with the decision, giving themselves over to believe the wrong things and to act in the wrong way. And that begins this downward spiral in which they lose sensitivity to the truth. And losing sensitivity to the truth, their hearts become hardened, they grow in ignorance, they're excluded from the life of God, they're darkened. You see, it's a process. It's not that God's coming in to keep people out of his kingdom. It's that we're in this process of hardening ourselves over time. And the end is this exclusion from life. It's not that God's keeping us out. You know, this is far more... uh, was. typical in the past when more people got leprosy. You know, when a person gets leprosy, part of what happens to them, a very significant part of what happens to them, we think of the gross disfigurement. But uh, Hansen's disease actually attacks the nervous system also, so that people with leprosy can't feel. They lose sensitivity and they injure themselves, sometimes, sometimes grossly, because they have no feeling left. They wouldn't say, I'm going to go and bang my arm or leave my arm in the fire. They wouldn't say consciously that's what they're doing, but they could injure themselves that severely and never know it because they have no feeling left. Well, Paul says in this process of turning from the truth, this process of hardening, we lose our sensitivity so that we, don't, we are not open. We're not like a dry sponge ready to soak up water We're dull to the truth. We're insensitive to the truth. We prefer the darkness. That's the process. Paul says something along the same line in Romans 1. God starts to come into the picture in Romans 1. And if you remember in Romans 1, Paul is showing the lost state of the Gentiles primarily, but all the people in the world, that they're lost without God. And he talks about the process a little bit here in Romans chapter 1. He says in verse 21, uh, by the way, this is preceded by the phrase where it says, uh, even though they knew the truth about God, they suppressed the truth. They, they saw the truth and what they do? They sat on it. They pushed it down. They pushed it away. At verse 21, he says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile, that same word. In their speculations, their foolish heart was darkened, same thing. Professing to become wise, they became fools. What did God do? Well, verse 24, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. What did God do? Did God continue to confront them with the truth? No, at some point in this process, God gave them over to their desires. Verse 26, For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. He quit restraining them. He said, that's where you want to go and that's what you want? Okay. Okay. Verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. God gave them over to exactly what they wanted. Here's God in the process, and at some point he says, I'm not going to oppose your decisions anymore. I'm not going to oppose the direction you want to go. I'm going to give you over to it. I'm going to allow you to take what you've wanted. That's bad enough. That's bad enough. It gets worse, though. Sometimes people are so hardened and the season of opportunity to embrace the truth comes and it ends, that God actually steps in, and I guess you could say this, that he helps the process reach its natural and inevitable conclusion. That is, for the person and or the group that set themselves to deny the truth, to turn away from the light and go the opposite direction, sometimes God actually steps in, and he makes that process take place more rapidly, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. What Paul says here is, is prophetic. It hasn't happened. It's about when the Antichrist would come on the earth. And he's talking about the Antichrist and the effect or the impact he has on the larger world around him. And he says this, "...his coming is with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders." With all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Why? In order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. There's a day coming when the Antichrist, the opposite of Christ, the opposite of truth and light, this man is going to come and claim deity. There's going to be wonders like with him, just as there were with Jesus, so that people will believe. But in this mix, Paul tells us God will send. This is different than God giving them over to their own choice. This is different indeed. It's another step down the line. God is going to send a deluding influence on them so that they will believe what is false so that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth. Again, realize in this process these people are running the opposite direction and God essentially says, I'm going to get you there a little faster. I know where you're going. I know what you're doing. I'm confirming your choices and I'm just going to hasten the process. You can see this illustrated in 1 Kings 22. Do you remember the story when wicked King Ahab in Israel, God's decided it's time to end his life. And you remember his notorious wife Jezebel, some of the worst rulers Israel ever saw. And God says, basically, I've had enough. I'm going to remove him from his office of king. And so Micaiah, the prophet, there in Ahab's court, has a vision. And he sees the courts of heaven. And what does he see? God's sitting in heaven. The spirits, I take it, these are both demons and angels are in heaven around God. And God says, basically, I've decided to end Ahab's reign. How shall I go about it? And it says, one spirit and another come forth with their ideas. And one finally comes and says, this is what I'll do. I will be a lying spirit in the mouths of Ahab's prophets. And God says, go and succeed. Ahab had rejected the truth all his life. God says his season of opportunity is over. I'm going to end his life. How shall it be done? The Spirit says, I will, I will put lies in the mouth of his prophets. And God sends the Spirit to do exactly that. And he does. And Ahab doesn't live out that day. This is If you remember the story, this is when the soldier takes an arrow at random and just puts an arrow in the air and it kills Ahab. God had given him the season of opportunity. He had rejected it, turned from the truth, hardened himself, become calloused, futile, all the words we've read. Till the end, God says, God sends a deluding influence to hasten the process Ahab has been in. Paul says that will happen yet again in the future when the Antichrist is revealed on the world scene. This is interesting, too. The reason I'm, I w- I'd like to kind of beat this horse down, just so you understand, God is not preventing someone on the front end from repenting. And we'll, we'll wind up with this at the end of John 12. But if you tell someone, or if they read a passage like this, the first thought almost always instinctively to, is to say God is unfair, and he is anything but unfair. He is so not unfair, he is 180 degrees the other direction. But that's what your initial thing will be. It's unfair, but no, it's not. No, it's not. King Ahab was an example. The period in which Paul's writing in 2 Thessalonians, John writes about in the book of Revelation. And there's two passages in which four times John tells us this. God is sending these terrible judgments on the earth. Terrible times. Things we we never want to see. Earthquakes and famine and pestilence and war and judgment, scorpions, you name it. What's man's response? These would be incentives to me, you know, to think, okay, I've heard you. What do you want me to do? Four times, John tells us, in the same period, Paul's describing, this is the phrase, men refuse to repent and give glory to God. They are so hardened, they, are, they will not, the one thing they will not do is humble themselves and give glory to God and say, you're God and I'm not. I repent. I humble myself. They won't do it. So when Paul says God sends a deluding influence, you need to understand all he's doing is hastening the process that these folks are committed to. He has not cut them off from salvation because somehow from the front end he didn't want them. All he's done is hasten the process they're in. In summary, God makes it Plain that truth has this confirming effect. That is, it confirms us either in truth and righteousness or it hardens us against being able to perceive truth and reality. The decisions we make to reject the truth make us eventually into someone who can't accept the truth. We become so hardened, so callous, so insensitive, so given to darkness that we've moved so far from the truth we can't come back. Sometimes, not always, there's there's examples here, but this doesn't say this is universal. Sometimes God joins that process by saying to a person or group, you don't want to accept the truth, and now I'm not going to let you. You've moved so far away, there's no turning back. C.S. Lewis said, Heaven is man saying to God, your will be done. Hell is God saying to man, your will be done. And that's exactly what God's doing in these scenarios. God is saying to man, your will be done. And when God hardens that person or when he blinds him or her to the truth, it is only confirming the decisions the person or the group has been making all along the way. This is not God keeping someone who's struggling for repentance and salvation from heaven. This is God simply confirming the decisions someone has been making all along the way. John 12 does not close with all doom and gloom about not believing. Look at verses 42 and 43. He says, nevertheless, even though most don't believe, and even though he's bringing in these, these passages of judgment and unbelief from Isaiah in, John tells us, nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. John's been telling us most didn't believe, but some did. And some of those who believed, Appeared to be the least likely to do so. I love this the the, the fact that you and I look around at people, and in our own minds, we kind of weigh are they likely or unlikely to become a Christian? These guys, John mentions here, they, they were the least likely. Not because they were losers, losers had been coming to Christ for three years, because they were winners. These were the guys on the top of the social heap. These are the guys with money and political power and social standing. It says they're the rulers. They belong to the group that indicts Jesus and crucifies him. And they believed. This is hopefulness. In the midst of unbelief, John tells us even the most unlikely of candidates were believing and coming to Christ and being saved. Now, he does tell us that because of their fear and because they desired the approval of men more than God, they weren't confessing, they weren't publishing this. They weren't making it known, and that's not it an upside. That's that's a downside. They were coming to faith in Christ, and that was good. John says, but they weren't coming as far as they should have. They weren't coming out into the open. I would just say to that, there's lots we could say. I would just say, before in your own mind, this is one of a couple of passages in John which John tells us for fear, for these other reasons people weren't professing Christ publicly, though they had believed in him privately, Before you cast too many stones in your mind at guys like this, ask yourself, how many times do you do something that's not right or keep from doing something that you know you're supposed to because you don't like what it's going to cost you? That's what they were doing. How many times do you or I look at something and say, I know God wants me to do that, but I don't want to do it because it's going to cost me this. Or I know I shouldn't do that, but I'm going to because I really want it. That's all they're doing. They're doing what you and I do every day. For them, the stakes are pretty high. To be kicked out, they lose their position and their power, their influence, etc. But John tells us, this is important to get, even in the midst of most callously, hard-heartedly rejecting Christ, even the most unlikely of candidates were believing. It was a deficient thing. It wasn't brought out in the public, but they were still believing. John switches back, verses 44 to 50. These are the last words of Christ in public before the Upper Room Discourse. This is where we're ending our series. It goes back to Jesus' conversation. Jesus cried out and said, "...He who believes in Me does not believe in Me, but in Him who sent Me. He who sees Me sees the One who sent Me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in Me will not remain in darkness." If anyone hears my sayings and doesn't keep them, I don't judge him, for I didn't come to the world to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word, or we could substitute the truth, I spoke, is what will judge him at that last day. I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. I love the fact that this ends on this note. If you're tempted to think after a passage like John 12 or the quotes from Isaiah, that God is somehow unfair or hard-hearted, look at how Jesus ends. He says, I've come as light in the world so you don't have to stay in darkness. He says, guys, I didn't come here to judge you. I came to save you. And he says when God's passing out commandments, this is his commandment. It's eternal life. In other words, God is bending over backwards to bring people, to lead people out of darkness into light, out of error into truth, out of insanity really, into rationality and reality. And Jesus' words aren't here to judge us. His presence on the earth wasn't to condemn us. It was to save us. And what God the Father is really after is life. In the midst of this, in the midst of John telling us, boy, most didn't believe. And we look and we see this process of hardening and rejection and callousness and darkening of our hearts over time and a process in which sometimes God steps in and hastens, brings it to its conclusion faster than it would happen otherwise. God is reminding us this isn't what he's about. This isn't what he's after. It's not his desire. His command Is life. Jesus didn't come to judge, but to save. And he didn't come to pull the curtain over the light. He came to bring folks lost in darkness into the light. So it's this great reminder, when you embrace truth, you're remaining sensitive to reality. The more often, the more regular you obey the scriptures, the more sensitive you are to truth. The more often you and I sin against the truth by choosing to do what we know is wrong or by choosing not to do what we know is right, the harder we become. This can happen to Christians, too, as I'm sure you know. We're talking about those who are saved and not saved, but the same thing. A mini version of that same process can happen to you and I. How many of us has known Christians that walked with the Lord, and after a while they made choices, they took them down the wrong road, and as far as you and I know, they've never come back they've never come back. So this is a great warning. Two things. It's a reminder. Choose the light. Embrace reality. Choose the truth. It leaves you sensitive to truth. When we embrace truth, we'll get more truth. But when we turn from it, we enter this process in which we harden ourselves to what's true. And for those without Christ, that process ends ultimately in judgment Not because that's what God wants for them. Not because that's what Christ came to do. Not because he's a vengeful, small-minded God. But because that's the natural conclusion of anyone who turns from truth, turns from light, and turns from life. Eternal life, that's God's command. Choose life, John is saying. Father, I'm thrilled that your commandment is eternal life and, Lord, that beyond that, eternal life To our benefit is at your cost. Father, we had no ability to purge away our own sins. We were dull to you and to righteousness, but you sent your Son. He covered our sins in his death and resurrection, and he bids us come to your table today. And Father, I pray that we would get hold of this and understand that to obey the truth and to agree with your word is sanity. It's light and it's life. And Father, I pray in our own lives we would not cover the light with any kind of covering. I pray that the truth in us is lived out day by day, that we stay sensitive to the truth, that we obey your word, Lord, and that that has a benefit to those around us, that Christ is living through us, that his light is in us, that his words of truth are on our lips, in our mouth. Lord, thanks that your command is life and help us to be signs of life along the way, Lord, for those around us. Help us to encourage each other to pursue life, to pursue light, to pursue you. In Jesus' name, amen.